Welcome to COVID-19 The Answers, Episode 5, Part 2 of our interview with Mr. David Morley, President and CEO of UNICEF Canada. Moving on to Part 2 of our programme, Global Vaccine Equity. The World Health Organization has a strategy to achieve global COVID-19 vaccination of 40% of the population in every country by the end of 2022 and 70% by the middle of 2023. David, could you please tell the audience about COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access Facility or COVAX and UNICEF's role and whether you think the World Health Organization's strategy is achievable? I'm an optimist. So um, if, before I, I'll explain a bit about how it works, but but um, if we're able to get the funding, I think we have the elements in place to be able to, to hit those targets. I am an optimist though. Um, but the way it, the way COVAX has worked is that um, the W, the World Health Organization, um, Gavi, the the Global Alliance uh, uh, for Vaccines Initiative, and SAPI, which is uh, also involved in in vaccines, have come together to. Um, they were putting out a lot of the tenders, a lot of the ways to try and get vaccines developed, right? And it was this came together right at the, as a as a coalition right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, before there were any vaccines. Yeah, still for uh, against COVID. And um, they turned those three organizations right away turned to UNICEF. Um, we um, because because UNICEF has developed over over the existence of our organization the infrastructure that the world needs to be able to deliver vaccines in a in a in, in before up to before the pandemic. We procured and uh, delivered almost half of the, va- oh, the vaccines that vaccinated almost half of the world's children. Yeah. So in an average year, uh, we would be shipping, sending out um, a- at least a billion vaccines for the routine childhood immunization. Uh, in fact, until about Maybe eight years ago, we actually were vaccinating more than half of the world's children. But then uh, the government of India took out, started doing it themselves. And there's a lot of that's a lot of children. It's, you know, the, so uh, but still, it's about 45 percent of the world's children that we would vaccinate every year. So we had the in- infrastructure. We know the capabilities of ministries of health. We know where um, where the bottlenecks are in a system. We know uh, who's got a good cold chain to keep the vaccines cold. Um, And uh, our colleagues know how do you get vaccines through through customs uh, with a minimum of uh, problems. And and our colleagues know, know the components, you know, how, how to get, because you got the, the vial with the vaccine in it, but then there's the syringes and the safety boxes and everything else you need to pull together. So that's a huge part uh, for routine childhood immunization that that uh, that, UNICEF, that UNICEF does. So um, as 
the World Health Organization was starting to think about this, well, we were the natural uh, natural implementing agency for this. So we we're working together uh, to make that to make that happen. Um, we've come so far when you think two years ago, we didn't even know what COVID is. A year ago, we we de- we delivered the first um, the first vaccines uh, through Covax uh, reached Ghana. Uh, it was the first country in the world to get some. Uh, uh, they got them in uh, February of last year, um, and now the the many of the bottlenecks have been overcome. Not all of them, not all of them, but many. Um, and so I think that if the money is there, um, we have the system that can make it work. And uh, it's an extremely, one of the bigger, one of the biggest things we had to do in working with ministries of health and in training with, with community health workers um, was vaccine hesitancy and the difference of giving the vaccines to adults as opposed to children. Um, and I think we've seen that in Canada, you know, the distribution for uh, the, the, and the organization that we had to do here to be able to vaccinate adults as opposed to the routine immunization for children. It's different. And um, adults are, well, sometimes they don't want to get vaccinated in a certain way or they're babies too. They don't want to get this type of babies can take their vaccines better than adults do often. So there's there's training that that we have to do in many countries. Um, so we put a lot of those building blocks in place, and um, now it's ramping it up further. Great. Drawing from a commentary titled Vaccine Apartheid, Global Cooperation and Equity, published in The Lancet in February 2022, I quote, an open letter to G20 leaders in October 2021 highlighted how 133 doses per 100 people have been given in high income countries compared with four doses per 100 people in low income countries. The World Health Organization Director General has called the divide a vaccine apartheid, speaking beyond the phrase vaccine inequity to emphasize the scope of this moral failure and make explicit comparisons to the South African system of institutionalized racial segregation. David, UNICEF did a fantastic job with many obstacles by delivering 1 billion COVID vaccine doses to 144 countries by the end of December 2021. Truly amazing. The original target was 2 billion doses. So what were the factors in your opinion that impacted the shortfall of the original target? What additional assistance would UNICEF need to deliver a larger volume of doses? Well, I think, um, you know, that that what you quoted from The Lancet um, is the reason we didn't hit our target at first. You know, the um, but there are elements within that. First of all, it was um, ramping up production. You know, there were um, and I remember there was for one of the one of the dose, one of the. Um, uh, brands, 
ran into difficulty with their with a factory. I think it was in Baltimore, and so suddenly the U.S., which was going to be, oh, they had to scramble to do that. So there was, in after after the vaccines had been invented, it was um, rampant getting getting production high enough, and that and then yeah, absolutely, wealthy com- countries outbid others to get to get the, the those uh, vaccines and um but we now uh, what i have heard from some of our colleagues who are close to this is that the issue um is not the, there will be a sufficient supply maybe there already is so it's no longer supply that's that's an issue uh it's um and to reach some of the low-income countries that, that uh, this is too much of a blanket statement, but it's relatively true, have, have uh, less robust health systems. Uh, middle-income countries have, have, tend to have slightly more robust uh, health systems. Um, uh, so it's making sure that, that things like the cold chain and that there's a sufficient, um, all the supplies that we need to to uh, go out because you know the Lancet was saying in in uh, that um, in October of last year it was four doses per hundred. Uh, the most recent I've heard is now it's ten doses per hundred in in low income countries. So it's not good enough. Please no, I'm not saying that it's good enough, but I do think that the numbers keep moving, and I think we'll be able to to keep the uh, keep the speed. Uh, on its way, I think. But but you know what? I'll tell you. There are two things that really concern me um, about how we will keep that speed up. Um, one is when when people in the wealthiest countries, the high income countries like ours here in Canada. Or in the UK, when our when we have many of our leaders saying, "Okay, the pandemic's over," um, well, maybe it feels that it's over for those of us who are middle class Canadians, um, but it's not over. But because we're, if we think it's over, then maybe we'll forget, and the political support for sending, for helping other countries, um, will decline, and. Um, so that that will be less likely. And my other fear is that as a species, it seems we can only keep one thing in our mind at a time. And with the war in Ukraine, that is, um, which is horrific. And I, I mean, it's horrific. But it, it, Maybe that combination of the war in Ukraine and that things are opening up in the OECD countries, we're going to forget about the rest of the world. And, um, and of course, that's horrible for the people who are suffering, the, the countries and economies which are still shaking. But also, it's foolish because we know that low vaccination rates are going to mean more opportunities for for more variants and um you know in our own self-interest it's foolish let alone um 
let alone for the fact that it's morally repugnant. Well said. And um, politicians can go on and on about the pandemic being over, but the evidence um, is all pointing to the fact that it isn't. We may well be done with this virus, but this virus hasn't been, is not done with us yet. And I think that attitude will poke us in the eye in the in the very um, short distance future, frankly. Yeah. Um, vaccines in low and middle income countries are in short supply and adults are being prioritized for COVID vaccination. Bearing in mind that children in low and middle income countries have had more severe cases and deaths from COVID due to poverty, poor nutrition, higher rates of pre-existing illness. Can we reshape this narrative to allow more children to be vaccinated in lower and middle income countries, yet balanced with COVID vaccinating adults to avoid children being orphaned? You you mentioned earlier um, about the impact of, of poor nutrition on, on health and on, on opportunities for child survival. And I suggest, I think this is a good example of, of, of that, that when, when children are weaker diseases have are more are, are worse for those for those children i think um that we need we still need to be sure that frontline workers are all getting vaccinated and being you know the health the particularly health workers and as i mentioned earlier teachers um and that's where we've been um, we've been putting a lot of our emphasis in. So that's still those are adult and uh, those uh, those are adults, but they're they're key adults in 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 bringing the pandemic. And and then and then once they're fully vaccinated, if schools can be can be open, and if then frontline workers, health workers can be community health workers, you know, can be. Um, delivering vaccines, um, then they're going to be able to, um, that, I mean, the routine immunization vaccines, that is going to be, that is going to be very helpful. I think um, within the, uh, uh, when you talk about, about the narrative, I think we have to, um, again, it's almost a matter of triage, you know, I think, what are the vaccines that we are going to be able to get into countries first? So if it's going to be um, adult or or uh, adolescent or pediatric formulations, if it's if it's for adults, so um, that will uh, I think that still needs to be the the priority is figuring out and and it it will be it will be physicians like you uh, and, and your counterparts in countries around the world who will decide uh, in those ministries who are the most vulnerable and and starting with the most vulnerable and working our way that way sort of um, as we have as we have here it's it's imperfect but I think it's the best way for us to approach how to how to move forward on this. Okay, thank you. 
And another question in that topic. Um, uh, COVID vaccination of children has not been a global success story, regardless of perceived economic status. Even in high income countries, COVID vaccination is not universal. For example, the UK has been very slow to vaccinate children. In North America, there is a relatively poor uptake of COVID vaccination, particularly in the five to 11 year age group. What plan is COVAX developing for the COVID vaccination of children in low and middle income countries? It's um, it's important important to remember that that, or to be to be clear, because I realize I haven't been clear. Much of what we do at uh, uh, our colleagues in COVAX is um, responsive to what ministries of health uh, are within a given country are going to want. So we're not uh, at UNICEF. We're not the ones who are saying. Um, you should vaccinate in such and such a region or do it in such and such a way. What we're doing is is providing the support and then the Ministry of Health and together with the World Health Organization, but the ministries are the ones who are making the, the decisions about um, who will get priority. And WHO will be saying... Um, Here's how we think you should do it, and there's sort of I think there's a general agreement about the frontline health workers, but it's um, we are still globally outside of high income countries. Um, the issue of, of pediatric uh, pediatric uh, vaccination against COVID is is again this is probably too sweeping a statement, but it is. We're still trying to get enough adult vaccination, all of the vulnerable adults um, vaccinated, and that that's led by the local ministries of health. Um, and and it also de- and, and it depends when we get donations of actual doses, what kind of doses do we get as well? Because we get both doses themselves donated as well as money for us to buy the dose, buy the kind of vaccines. So. Um, um, so we're, we we really want to help ministries of in, ensure that ministries of health, that local ownership is really what's driving this within a given country. So COVAX depends on the philanthropy of high-income countries donating vaccines. Surplus vaccine is donated once the donating country is sufficiently supplied. This does not appear to address the root causes of vaccine inequity. I've heard of various ideas to overcome this inequity, such as addressing patent rights for mRNA technology so that poorer countries can manufacture the vaccines themselves. Alternatively, I've heard of an idea of COVID vaccines that should be made in a number of smaller advanced countries with smaller populations, as there will always be a bias to vaccinate your own country first. So if the population is smaller, then they could quickly distribute to everyone else after vaccinating their own. Most manufacturing is happening in countries with large populations, such as the USA, India, UK, which is possibly stalling distribution to lower middle income countries. David, what thoughts do you have on increasing vaccine production and equitable distribution globally? Well, I think that, you know, we're seeing, um, for instance, in, in South Africa, not a 
small country, but um, I do think having um, having the manufacturing of of the vaccines uh, in a variety of countries and regions is extremely important and will be extremely helpful. Um, if things really um, get further bogged down, um, then there's, you know, we there are mechanisms in the World Trade Organization um, which might become necessary, like uh, compulsory licensing, like uh, waiving patent rights, um, and um, or else, you know, and I think some places are looking to um, some companies who have the patents um, to to uh, to share the patents at a at a minimal or nominal fee. See, might be what they want to do to avoid anything compulsory coming. Uh, that, but but that would help. But it's um, it's also um, other. Uh, it's 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 not. We have to remember that it's not only the the vaccine itself. It's not only the vial that we always see a picture of on television. It's how do we get? We got to be sure that we don't start having a shortage of syringes because we need all those syringes, right? There's the there's the special uh, special syringe, one dose, uh, a set amount. Uh, some of our my colleagues have just expressed concern that all of the supply chain stuff that goes into making those syringes, um, there's a risk. We're not they're, they're still being produced now, but that could be a concern down down the road or later on this year, as well as the 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 safety boxes and and still the PPE, right? The the that the frontline workers need who are administering the vaccine. So um, dispersing the the manufacturing of the vaccines, but also ensuring the supply chain of the other less less high tech. Uh, side of of making vaccination uh making made to the, the everything you need as i say to turn the turn that those what's in what's the vaccine to turn it into a vaccination that goes into somebody's arm i i think a decentralized manufacturing is going to will be helpful and uh and will allow for faster and more equitable distribution thank you for that I think you've partially answered this already, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but with respect to vaccine distribution in areas where people can least afford it, former CEO of Merck, Ken Fraser, has a great quote, the last mile challenge is the greatest. David, how is UNICEF working to overcome that last mile challenge? What else do you need? You think needs to be done for equitable vaccine distribution? So we're talking about actually... um, needles in arms yeah no i i i um i love this question because that last mile challenge is what um is unicef and and our partners are are you know civil society groups ngos ministries of health we're thinking about that all the time how do you get all the, and what we what we know is that if you say, "I'm going to reach this village that's 
beyond the end, not only of the paved road, but even of the dirt road that just has paths to get to it. If that's the village we're going to reach, that it's going to make all the way along the chain from the from the capital city and the airport where things landed, it's going to make it all stronger. And it's absolutely, it's a challenge. I don't want to belittle it. But um, goodness me, the community health workers that it's been my privilege to meet in a few different countries and their, their commitment, their uh, enthusiasm, like those folks are the heroes, I think. It's the, it's the, the, I was just talking with a friend the other day about, about a guy named Edward. I, that's why I remember because I was talking about the other day. I met him a few years ago in, in, uh, he's a community health worker in Uganda. And he just inspired me because they were, that Uganda was setting up a system where you could do, uh, report stockouts, uh, of medicine by text medicine, by text, by SMS. And, uh, and he would say, yeah, and we have to climb up a tree to, ho- to be able to get the signal, right, to send the <laughs> message to, to into Kampala. And um, uh, so, yeah, it's a challenge. There's no, I mean, and, and I don't want to belittle it by, by that challenge by any way. I don't want to romanticize it, although I can assure you I feel pretty romantic about it when I think of those people who are doing so much and making a, such a remarkable di- di- uh, difference. So I'm not sure that I would agree that the last mile challenge is the greatest. Um, it's a huge challenge, but there are challenges all the way along the way. And what we'd have at the end, at that in that last mile, is people who are hungry to help and the community health workers who... Give them the tools, and they're going to do the job. So sometimes the challenge is um, is maybe us in the high income countries opening our hearts enough to be able to uh, to make sure that there's to 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 the need for ac- vaccine equity and justice. That might be a greater challenge than that last mile. Well said. Despite a great desire for the pandemic to be over. There is a worldwide push by governments and public health agencies to declare we have to live with the coronavirus and claiming that we're in an endemic phase. According to the evidence-based information, we are still in the middle of a pandemic and it is far from over. As you've correctly stated earlier, there will be more variants emerging given 50% of the world's population are effectively unvaccinated, particularly if COVID vaccination is defined as a three-dose vaccine program. What are your opinions with regards to live with the coronavirus and ending public health measures such as masking and vaccine mandates, particularly since the majority of the world's children are unvaccinated from COVID? You know, I'm not a policymaker, and um, I think um, sometimes as we talk about the need to live with the live with the pandemic, live with coronavirus, um, is is because societies in high income countries um, are exhausted. Uh, by everything that we, I don't think that's necessarily a 
So it may just be a reality. I'm talking here about the high income countries. Um, you know, the and and in that huge global pandemic of the Spanish flu, that last the, the in that in the third year, which we don't talk much about the third year of the Spanish flu, we just talk about the first two, because people were tired of the measures they had to take and they just figured, why are going to have to live with it? So I think it's, I think that living with the pandemic may be, may be something that we do have to do because our societies are fed up with it. You know, it's, um, I'm not by any means saying it's the right thing. I'm not saying, you, you know, but I just think there's a there's a um, there's a collective exhaustion with this, and 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 if that means that that variants spring up because so because as you were saying, so few people are vaccinated. I mean, globally, um, then we'll be back where we were before. Mm. Um, but I think that is um, living with the coronavirus statement is more a political statement than a health analysis statement. Yeah, well said again. If we look to the future, David, we will successfully emerge from this pandemic if we manage to achieve global cooperation leading to adequate sharing and distribution of COVID vaccines, resulting in actual needle in arms with regards to COVID vaccination. Presuming we achieve this, what new landscape of worldwide healthcare access do you see for our planet? Do you think this can materialise into better resources and access to healthcare in low and middle income countries, benefiting from infrastructure created from the pandemic? Well, well, despite what I've often been saying here, as I said, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic for two reasons. One is, um, you know, in in your question just now, you talked about uh, global cooperation, and one thing that has been exciting for me, I must say, is is the response of many, many, many tens of thousands of Canadians who've said, who've said, hmm, we need global solidarity to fix this. It's not, we need to, uh, um, it's not just my neighborhood or my province or even my country. We there's a recognition that, that, that the world Right now, it's the only place we have to live. And so when we say charity begins at home, well, home can be South Africa, home can be Bangladesh, home, you know, or home can be Toronto or Vancouver. But but that at, at a grassroots level, in so many times, it's been a wonderful sense of global solidarity as people have 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 risen to the occasion, I believe. And I also think, you know, what I mean, one example is um, around the ultra cold chain. In order to, to to do the vaccination campaigns that need to happen, absolutely, we're 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 
UNICEF is working with those local ministries of health to make sure that it's not a bunch of outsiders coming in or it's not a bunch of, uh, um, you know, changing all these new, having to create new, impose new systems or anything. No, it's strengthening ministries of health and it's strengthening the training of community health workers. It's strengthening um, those those supply chains that are reaching out to that last mile. Um, we've, so for example, we have delivered hundreds of um, uh, of new uh, ultra cold uh, fridges to keep, uh, and and we're not taking them back afterwards. I mean, they're they're they've gone to countries along with the the system in order to keep them ultra cold. And we've also upgraded the cold chain. I'm just picking the cold chain because since I'm not medical, it's one I can understand the. Uh, uh, the importance of, of that. Um, and we've been upgrading uh, the physical infrastructure of clinics and all so that uh, um, to be the sub centers which, from which often the, 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 the vaccines are uh, go out to the more rural areas. And we're doing more training. So, so I do think that the result from this is going to be our stronger health systems in many countries. It, it will be a, a byproduct and um, a byproduct that we're trying to do on purpose. I mean, we have to address the pandemic now and then, and then the stronger health systems will be a way to, to address the issues now, but it will, it really will leave a legacy that can be used once things are back or a new normal, whatever we want to call it, and that'll have stronger systems that can do a better job of the routine immunization for children, that can do a better job of delivering nutrition. That um, uh, and that that's going to make things better. So I, I, it's going to take. You know, I talked about the child, this child survival revolution that's been stopped by the pandemic. It's not going to be today but i do think that we'll be able to come out of that maybe it's going to be might take a couple of years but it'll will come out stronger and we'll be able to do more uh, as a global society to 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 ensure that global health is is higher on the agenda and that most importantly from our perspective as unicef that children lead healthier lives i think that will come that was a fantastic statement to end this interview, David. Um, thank you for your contribution. UNICEF is an amazing organization. One of those who I would say are holding up the world at the moment. We are all thankful that you continue to be a great advocate and champion of children's rights. Thank you very much. For and I'd like to really um, appeal to the audience to please donate to UNICEF. You've seen and heard today of the amazing work and things that they do nationally and internationally, not just for children, but for adults. Pe people can donate by going to the website. Is that right, David? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, um, and, and here in, here in, in Canada, I, it's uh, unicef.ca. Um, is where people can go to make donations and um, be part of our 
global movement to improve to improve child health. Excellent. And yes, and I think it's unicef.org if you're It's the global one. And I know that you go around the world. So um, yeah, unicef.org is is also the way. So wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, those links will be provided on the show notes so people can uh, click on and and go to those directly. Um, So please join us for next week's episode called uh, Vaccination of the Indigenous People of Canada and the Effects of COVID-19 on the Indigenous People of Canada. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 the answers.